Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marianne Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Jane. I'm Paula. Welcome. Welcome to our podcast. We read The Husband Poisoner by Tanya Bretherton this month. Yes, non-fiction. Yes, which is our first non-fiction for a little while, I think. Yeah, I think my friend Anna was maybe our last. Oh, that was ages ago. Mm. Yep, so it was time. What a great book that was. Shall I talk about Tanya? Please. A little bit. I don't have a lot about information about her. She's a freelance researcher and writer. She's a sociologist. She's got a PhD in sociology and has been publishing her writing for about 20 years. She's been a senior research fellow at the University of Sydney and she has been consulted on to do research and write for people like Mission Australia, The Smith Family, Adopt Change. She's also the author of three other crime non-fiction books, The Suitcase Baby, The Suicide Bride and The Killing Streets. So all very... She's into her murders. Murdery. <laughs> I think... Oh, I definitely know two of those three are set in Sydney or mm. are in Sydney, are cases from Sydney, as was the Husband Poisoner. So I don't know if the other one was. So, yeah, this was a fun book to leave lying around the house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know if you looked at the Goodreads comments, but so many of them start off with, my husband looked at me sideways when he saw this book on my nightstand. <laughs> I notoriously, famously, you know, within my family, <laughs> carry books around as I'm reading them so I don't just sit in one spot and read so I'll carry it to the lounge and it sits in there and carry it to bed and it sits next to my bed it's in the kitchen you bring it into work bring it sits it to there work, it sits here <laughs> it sits on my car seat in the car so it travels around with me and so Stephen my poor husband this is just triggering every time I walked into the room oh there it is there it is what does this mean <laughs> is she getting tips <laughs> I was like it's non-fiction as well. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> so this story starts off with Yvonne Fletcher making a cup of bonnox, which it was bonnox. Well, obviously it was in Australia because this mm. is an Australian book. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't have bonnox. I don't... I have never had that either. Right. It's an, like an old It's thing. an old thing. Yeah. Right. And is bovril the more contemporary one or is that also old? <laughs> or does just nobody drink this kind of... <laughs> beef flavored tea anymore it does seem super old school i don't know anyone that drinks beef flavored tea yeah <laughs> anyway this is back in the is it the late 40s yeah post-war post-war yeah. and yvonne is making a cup of good old cup of bonics for her husband desmond and she's lacing it with thal rat rat poison thallium Yes. Is well, that sorry. what it's called, is that? Yeah, the, oh, the product, the the product oh, is see, called Thal Rat. I told you I'd screw this up. Sorry. Go <laughs> Jane on. read this book very early in the month. She was extremely keen. I did. I read it really early. You yeah. did, yeah. So it might not be as fresh no, in your mind right. as, as it is for me who finished it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the product is called Thal Rat and it's mm. thallium and it's used to poison rats. And this is what Yvonne is putting in her husband's bonnocks and then it goes on to detail the beginning and then of the inevitable demise of Yvonne's relationship with her husband and where they lived in Sydney everybody knew everybody else's business and the walls were thin and everybody heard their arguments and they were both unfaithful to each other and everything would end in these screaming matches 
And then Desmond begins to have what to everyone else are these unexplained symptoms. So he's at a dance one night and he loses control of his legs and his mates have to try and pull him aside and figure out what's going on. And he's screaming in pain and he kind of recovers, but then every so often it'll come back. He's got pins and needles in his legs and he can't eat and his stomach feels like it's on fire and his legs feel like they're on fire. And then again, he'd rally and then it would worsen. And then eventually he's weak and he loses his hair and the doctors can't find anything wrong with him. So they say, ooh, it's all in his head. And then everyone thinks he's crazy. Yeah. And then in a cruelly ironic moment, one doctor even prescribes more Bonnox for him because it was considered to be a good source of iron at the time. Yeah. Eventually he is determined to be insane and they commit him to a hospital for the insane and the chapter ends there but you eventually find out that Desmond does in fact die and that Yvonne goes on to marry another man who is this time physically abusive to Yvonne and her kids and so she serves him up the old fall rat in the bonnocks again <laughs> and offs him as well and yeah I just... I cannot imagine being in that position of watching somebody who, not watching anybody, mm. much less your husband, who at one point you would have loved, go through such a harrowing, extended, painful, gruesome mm. death. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you read the book, it's about women who have this spate of murders in the post-war era in Sydney mm. who murdered their husbands by poisoning them or family members by poisoning them you can't I kind of assumed it was like all right well he drinks the Bonox tea and then he's dead the next morning yeah no it's weeks and months of horrendous pain unexplained illness it's mm. just awful mm. the things that these poor victims suffered before they eventually die is just horrible yeah and like I said, her second husband was abusive, but her first husband was, he just, like, he ran around on her, but she was running around on him yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't even... quite clear the motive, was it, for that <laughs> no. one? No. It, yeah, the pain and suffering is immense in yes. all of these poor people. Yes. All of them. For a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of each, or not every chapter, but the end of a lot of the chapters, it ends with a recipe from the time period, and the first one is just the recipe for Bonnox, which is... Yeah. Put some bonnets in and some hot water. And yeah. there you go. <laughs> Glad you mentioned that because I wrote something about that. I think I really liked the inclusion of these recipes at the end of some of the chapters. These women poisoned these people with very carefully prepared meals or cakes or sandwiches or teas, whatever. Lots of different methods, I guess, that they delivered the poison. There's something, and this sounds awful, very very darkly humorous almost and but also very sinister about including the recipes yeah right this. that's a that's a good description of it it is it's dark and kind of oddly funny yeah you're yeah, right it's chapter my end with and then Desmond passed away in hideous pain and then he had a funeral and he died and then the next page is like lamingtons yeah, that's right. one cup of sugar Da, 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 da. And I think it also does a good job of setting the time frame because a yes. lot of the, these recipes are very 
old school, like something your yes. grandma would make. I highlighted a couple here, gave the reader a very clear glimpse of history through these very typical post-war Australian recipes. Mm. So there was things like there was obviously the bonnocks and then there was potato and bacon pie, dead man's arm, which right. is also known as a jam roly-poly. <laughs> <laughs> and what else was there? There's a couple. Oh, I'd like to read this to you. This is in the chapter about Carolyn Grills. Mm. So she murdered her 87-year-old stepmother. She murdered her uh, relatives by marriage, Angelina Thomas and John Lundberg. And she also murdered her sister-in-law, Mary Ann Mickelson. And then she also tried to poison, well, she did poison, but they didn't die, two other family members, Christine Downey and John Downey. So they didn't die, but they she served them thallium-laced tea to mm. presumably off them as well. So she was a serial poisoner mm. of family members, inconvenient family members, in the late 40s. So this is just a little excerpt of some of the food that was served up at, I think it was a sort of a birthday party. <laughs> it was her mother's birthday party, I think. So she'd already started poisoning Marianne, her sister-in-law, who was suffering from pain and had lost control of her bowels. She wasn't able to move, very incapacitated from Carolyn's poisoning. Jean also remembered that their auntie Caroline had bought a dish for the party that turned her stomach, a jellied meat concoction made with offal known as brawn or head cheese. (laughs) Made traditionally, the dish took a long time to prepare because the meat needed to boil down sufficiently to soften and activate the gelatin. With the advent of pressure cookers, however, home cooks could prepare dishes like brawn with ease. As Caroline set out her dish, she noticed with pride that the chunks of meat were beautifully suspended in the translucent jelly, as if floating. In Carolyn's mind, it was a triumph, a dish so pretty it resembled a square window of stained glass. (laughs) The dish made Jean and Gladys queasy. They were younger and from a different generation of women, eager to embrace the power of the freedom of post-war cooking, which did not involve rationing and substitution, mock meats and economical cooking. The sisters looked at the grey squares dotted with pink chunks of mystery meat and could barely hide their disgust. Years later, Carolyn still talked about how humiliated she had felt when the girls had judged her. Uh, and then there's the, a few pages later, then there's the recipe for head cheese. <laughs> Is that not... Jellied meat. I mean, uh, why did that go out? So <laughs> That's so horrific. Just awful. So there's a lot so of... So is that what head cheese is? Well, I guess Jellied so. meat? I guess so. Oh, right. It's so foul. <laughs> But and Jean's a vegetarian <laughs> on top of it, it's even worse. <laughs> so there's a lot of food throughout this book and I liked that because it did solidify the time in my in my mind mm. as well. Mm. And also particularly with Carolyn because she was quite food played a large part in her crimes and sort of made her crimes easier to commit because she was so well known for bringing cakes and bringing pies and bringing this and that to your house, including this head cheese. <laughs> I mean, it's so Just gross. Awful. And then, then to put the poison on top of that. I know, I know. So, yeah. 
Yeah. That. I know, that as was... soon as I read that, I thought that is just <laughs> the worst. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention was the very first paragraph starts like this. In October 1947, Sydney housewife Yvonne Gladys Butler planned the perfect murder. She didn't arrange an alibi because she didn't need one. In fact, she felt so confident of getting away with it, she left the victim's body out in plain sight and didn't bother to hide it. Yvonne believed the perfect murder was possible if it could be made to look like something else entirely and no one else even realized that a crime had been committed. And then when it switches to Carolyn Grills, who Jane was just talking about, it starts with the exact same paragraph except for substituting Carolyn's name instead. Mm, I didn't pick up on <laughs> oh, that. Oh, you did Well, yeah, I'll mention it again in a bit because there's another reason. But she points out that the two women were not at all connected, but they mm. decided to use the same method to um, get rid of inconvenient family members. And so basically then it go- talks about a lot of different poisonings that were happening and the number of poisonings mm. and the fact that there were no restrictions on buying this poison in New South Wales, even though there were in other states. I know they yeah. mentioned South Australia. Yeah. So there were two detectives. It then switches to focus on these two detectives, Ferguson and Crahey, I believe is how you pronounce it. And they are the detectives who are successful in bringing Yvonne Fletcher to justice. And they become experts in thallium poisoning and people call on them for the other mm. um, poisonings that are happening throughout the state. And they also talk about how corrupt the policing was in New South Wales in the 50s and 60s. And it reminded me of that Luna Park documentary. Did you ever watch that Mm-mm. about the, the Luna Park fire? Because they also mention about the amount of police and political corruption that mm. contributed yeah. to I mean, there's been that. a lot written about that period of time in New South Wales politically and the police corruption at the time. Right. Really interesting. What did you think? I mean... She talks, she wrote quite a bit about that within this book. What did you think about the inclusion of that sort of mini deep dive into the police corruption? Yeah, I'm of two minds about it. I admit that I I was extremely intrigued at the beginning and then I kind of lost my, mm. you know, desire to keep reading sort of partway through. And I think maybe it was because of this. And I also found the writing to be kind of confusing and vague at points and I don't know if that was intentional or what yeah I knew of the police corruption in the 50s and 60s and probably 70s in New South Wales but I didn't know who like I couldn't name anyone any of the key players in that period of time so I guess if you did know of those names you, you couldn't mention them I guess throughout the book so much as you know, because they've solved all these murders without at least addressing the fact that, yes, they solved these murders, but we also know this about these people. Yeah, she does go on to say that Ferguson and Crahey were known to be corrupt Mm. and she gets into the different types of political corruption, or sorry, not political, police corruption, and that the difference between the way Ferguson was corrupted and the way Crahey was Mm. corrupted. And yes, I think it would be remiss to not mention that in this context. So it was interesting. She said Ferguson was more into profiting off of illegal activities like abortions, Mm. whereas Crahey was like, just had his hand out taking bribes at every point that he could. And 
including perhaps being involved in murders of mm. people who were speaking out against police corruption. So that's the level yeah. of corruption. This is not just a bit of cash under the table. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's huge. Big stuff. It's yeah. huge. But I want to read an example of how I thought it was confusing. So this is about where things come to an end for Ferguson. So she's talking about Ferguson here. His career progression seemed to have no ending. That is until Valentine's Day 1970, when he was found dead in the private toilet adjacent to his office at police headquarters with a .38 bullet in his brain. The bullet matched his service revolver, which sat on the toilet floor along with a note. There was considerable speculation as to exactly what had happened. Journalists James Morton and Susanna Lopez contend that the tensions in the relationship between Crahey and Ferguson, which had simmered for some time, finally boiled over. The abortion racket, which had sustained Ferguson's profiteering from criminal activities for years, was about to be exposed. While it was claimed that Ferguson had been worried about a brain tumor, the autopsy determined that he had no trace of any organic disease. Dr. Stephen Lantos gave evidence at the investigation into Ferguson's death. He claimed that he had been trying to convince Ferguson for over a decade that he did not have a brain tumor. Quote, he was by no means reassured, unquote, said Dr. Lantos. City coroner J.J. Looms prohibited the publication of the note that was found near Ferguson's body, although in view of the considerable publicity the case received, he felt obligated to state that Ferguson believed he was suffering from something incurable. The cause of death was officially recorded as the effects of a bullet wound of the head and self-inflicted whilst in a state of mental depression. In an interview journalist Tony Reeves conducted with an unidentified morgue worker, the worker described the idea that Ferguson had committed suicide as absurd. Quote, he must have had very long arms and quick reflexes, unquote. It is also claimed that the original autopsy report identified two bullet wounds to the head, which was subsequently and very discreetly amended. None of this can, of course, be verified because the official records are not available for public Public scrutiny. However, in almost every account ever written, Ferguson's death is attributed to Crahey. Mm. I was, I was just, I didn't know what to make of that. What is yeah. she saying? That he had something to do with his murder. That Crahey yeah. had somebody yeah. do it, even though there was a note. So that they, yeah, I don't know. I, it, I found that intriguing and sensational. Yeah, as in, wow. Yeah, that's big. I know. I don't know. I found the way it was written just seemed, I don't know, confusing to me. Mm. But now I'm going to mention that beginning paragraph again, because did you not notice that the end paragraph is also, in February 1970, retired police Frederick Claude Crahey planned the perfect murder. He didn't arrange an alibi because he wouldn't need one. In fact, he felt so confident of getting away with murder, he left the victim's body out in plain sight and didn't bother to hide it. Crahey believed the perfect murder was possible if it could be made to look like something else entirely and no one else realized that a crime had been committed. Yeah, I did notice that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. how do you how do you feel about that? I like it. Yeah. I think it added a little bit of intrigue and it made me want to know more about a lot of different things. Right. I liked the narrative style of this book. I like narrative nonfiction. Mm. Um, I find that that's why, you know, it was so super quick to, and easy to read. I liked the combination of crime and suburban history. Yeah. I found that really interesting. I th- You might not have read these books because they're – Considered classic Australian fiction, Ruth Parks, Harp in the South and Poor Man's Orange, they're both 
books that are generally on, you know, year 12 reading lists and things like that, it remind, reminded me a lot of Poor Man's Orange. Is that fiction or? They're fiction pieces. Oh. Just the setting. I mean, there were no murders in, in Poor Man's Orange, not like in poisonings and things. It was more the setting. Poor Man's Orange is set in 1940s Surrey Hills in Sydney. So it, it gave me a lot of those same sort of feelings and it, it felt like it rang true mm. a little bit. It felt well-researched. It's such a funny, a lot of crime non-fiction pieces are very big, big crimes, like mm. big, huge sensationalist sensational murders, murders yeah. and things like that. But So the premise of this is a, sounds a little mundane almost, particularly because it's post-war and you're like, boring. <laughs> but I found it quite intriguing. Yeah, no, I wasn't bored Especially initially, and mm. yes, the narrative style is very easy to yeah. read. Just I kind of lost it for me halfway through. I say that about a lot of books, don't I? <laughs> Maybe you've got a short attention Maybe. span. Maybe. <laughs> I had to push myself to finish it. I didn't mm. read it quite as easily as you did. Yeah, I will agree. The last, probably third, mm. is... Yeah, I agree. The beginning part is you almost feel like it's a bit gossipy. Yeah. Hearing what everybody's up to and their relationships and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, that was. Yeah. It's interesting to see because there's, you know, the back end of the book has got a number of other cases that never were convicted as the women that poisoned these people weren't convicted or found guilty in court. So they were found innocent. And I wonder whether that's part of the reason why there was less focus on them. But it felt like there was too big. The Carolyn Gills bit at the front and Yvonne, what's her last name? Fletcher. Yvonne Fletcher's story. They, they take a, a big chunk of the book. Yeah. And then it's almost like, oh, and this person, this person, this person, they all poison people too. Yeah. That's the end. That's, that's, you know, how that's maybe pick the and, bit. That pick and choose who got the focus. I guess there's more information and, you know, the first two are found guilty. And interesting as well, Carolyn was found guilty in... 1953 and she was sentenced to death right for her crimes but it was later changed to life in prison and then in prison she became affectionately known as aunt thally (laughs) i missed that to the other inmates of sydney's long bay prison and then in 1960 she was rushed to prince henry hospital and she died from a ruptured gastric ulcer Mm. So she wasn't in there for that long. Mm. But karma got her in the end, I guess. Yeah. So that was The Husband Poisoner by Tanya Bretherton. Yeah. Did you... Oh, I know you've read other things this <laughs> month because I'm looking forward to one in particular hearing what you I thought. had... I should have kept a list of books that I started and didn't finish this month. It's oh. a really long list that <laughs> I got partway through and I've just abandoned them because I just didn't like them Mm. and I don't push on anymore I've um stopped doing that because I don't have time life's too short to read books we're not enjoying exactly I read A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing by Jessie Tu this is when did this come out last year I think think you're right there was a bit of uh, a buzz about this book yes it was long listed for the Stella Award it was long listed for the Indie Awards it was the winner of the literary fiction in the ABIA Awards mm. as well. Yeah. So it's gotten lots of lots of buzz. I think it's a debut novel. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe it was she won debut literary fiction, I think. This, I'll read just the first bit. 
Jenna Chung plays the violin. She was once a child prodigy and is now addicted to sex. She's struggling a little. Her professional life comprises rehearsals, concerts, auditions and relentless practice. Her personal life is spent managing family demands, those of her creative friends and lots of sex. Jenna is selfish, impulsive and often behaves badly, though mostly only to her own detriment. And then she meets Mark, a much older and worldly wise, who bewitches her. Could this be love? (laughs) I found a really good summary of this book on Goodreads by one of the reviewers on Goodreads called Crystal. She says, essentially, this is a novel about emptiness. Jenna is a professional violinist with a gaping hole of loneliness inside her, which she fills with meaningless sex. That's pretty much the gist of it. Oh, <laughs> so, which it is. yeah, is that a good thing or a bad thing, though? Oh, I feel conflicted about this book. I, I, I kind of enjoyed it, but also didn't enjoy it. It's one of those sorts of books. The blurb certainly makes it sound much more plot driven than what it actually is Uh. it's really strong in theme but not so much in actual plot Mm. there's no likable characters in this they're all awful pretty Mm. much the author did evoke a very strong sense of loneliness though and sadness jenna is unlikable but there's there's so much sadness about her and her behaviour and this meaningless sex which she has with all of these people is really it's not sexy sex it's Mm depressing sad (laughs) sex right it's not going to be for the faint-hearted it's not going it's not nice sex scenes it's pretty some of them are quite violent not in a non-consensual way but it's quite fetishy some of it okay which is not a a bad thing and it doesn't bother me but not Um, if it's if it's sad and depressing though then yeah that's that's right (laughs) yeah it's sad and depressing fetishy sex Mm. (laughs) So it did, it made me feel, oh gosh, your life is just so lonely, Mm. which is the whole point. It's not on the cover. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So you do feel a bit sorry for it. I kind of liked it. It did make me uncomfortable, but I also enjoy reading books that make me feel uncomfortable. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's, I quite, you know, I can lean into that a little bit. Yeah. This won't be for everybody. I'm kind of in the middle on it. Yeah. Right. There oh, you go. Thanks for that. I really <laughs> I'm curious about that book. It's been on my to be um, read pile. Same. It's been on mine yeah. for ages. Yeah. So I don't know. You might like it. Yeah. Well, I read Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. Oh, yay. And I'm embarrassed to say this is my first book by him, even though he's not only won the Man Booker, but also the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature. What else has he written? He's written uh, Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go are his oh. two big ones, and they were both made into movies. Yes. And I've not read it, obviously. I've not read any <laughs> of his books either. Well, Remains of the Day is one of my favourite movies. Mm. Ishiguro told the BBC that, quote, growing up in a Japanese family in the UK was crucial to his writing, enabling him to see things from a different perspective to that of many of his English peers. And I feel like you can see evidence of this in Remains of the Day and in Clara and the Sun, that feeling of being other. Mm. He does a really good job of that. And I rewatched Remains of the Day while I was reading this book. And even though there's such different books, because Remains of the Day is about a butler in the 1920s in England, and Clara and the Sun is about a young girl choosing and living with an artificial intelligence, sort of like a live doll almost in a dystopian future. There were scenes in each that had a similar feel, that the otherness of the butler and of the AI, and about how the more dominant and powerful members of society 
um, treated them. So I found that really interesting. And in fact, one reviewer called Clara and the Sun a cross between Never Let Me Go and Remains of the Day. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But all that said... I really didn't enjoy this book. Oh. Yeah. I went, it, wasn't expecting you to say that. I know, that. I wasn't expecting to feel that. I I found it extremely hard to get into. It was very slow-paced. I found it frustratingly vague, and I really had to force myself to finish it, and mostly I forced myself to finish it because it's Ishiguro, and I know Wow. Yeah. I, maybe there's something, I don't know, <laughs> wrong with me. But, Yeah. Wow. Okay. Mm. Because that's getting quite a bit of buzz and it's everywhere. And it should do because it's him. But I just, yeah, maybe I should. that's too bad. I should try reading Remains of the Day, I think. Well, I mean, that's a fairly slow and meandering movie as well. Well, That's true. I just liked those characters and what happens with them so much. Mm. Do you have something else? No, that's all I've read. I have one more. Oh, good. It's The Rain Heron by Robbie Arnett, Mm -hmm. which has been shortlisted for the Miles Fiction Awards. That's one of the reasons I wanted to read it. It also has a really cool-looking blue, whimsical-looking cover. So I started this immediately after Clara and the Sun, so I was refreshed that I was immediately intrigued by it. And it starts with this kind of fably sort of telling about this mythical heron that's the color of rain and that seems to be able to control the weather and the environment. And then eventually it shifts away from this fairy tale like narrative to a more contemporary fiction tone. And we find ourselves in this sort of dystopian, unnamed world where there's been a military coup and the powers that be decide that they must have this powerful rain heron. So they task a group led by this female commander to find and retrieve it. I found it interesting that people are saying they can tell this is set in Australia, even though it's unnamed. I mean, it's an oh, Australian okay. author. Yeah. But I listened to it on audiobook, and it starts with a reader with a British accent. So I was picturing, especially mm. at that fairy tale part, this far off land mm. in Britain somewhere or something. And then to, at the final section of the book, it changes its narrator and the audiobook changes to a reader with an Australian accent. And I don't really understand those choices on the part of the mm. whoever made that choice, the, the, why they would change the readers and have two di- different accents mm. when it's not like, you know, they start off in England and then they move to Australia. It's all just in somewhere unnamed. Yeah. We've talked about this lots of times about how the narration of an audiobook can so influence how you feel about a book. Definitely. And Mm. both of them did a good job. I'm not saying Mm. that they didn't do a good job. I was just confused by that. Yeah. It sounds like it could be a movie. Yes, definitely. Mm. I can picture it as a movie for sure. Sounds a little bit Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. It's a genre-defying book. Is it literary? Is it horror? Is it military? Is it oh, dystopian? Is it oh, yeah. Is it? Yes. Oh, okay. Is it cli-fi? Is it specfic? Yeah. It could be any of those things. Yeah, it, it's it's a really beautifully written book with lots of graphic imagery that's both beautiful and also grotesque mm. at different points. I liked it. I didn't love it in the end. Nice one. be interesting to see who wins the Miles Franklin. Is that long-listed, short-listed? Short-listed. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well done reading something from the short-list. Yeah, thanks. Finger on the pulse. <laughs> All right, I've got a number here. I'll, some of them I don't need to go too much into. This one, though, I 
love the sound of this one. It's called The Kingdoms by Natasha Pulley. This is a Bloomsbury book. This is out in August. And the tagline is, would you change the past to save the future if it meant losing those you love most? I think you might like the sound of this too. An enthralling, epic, unforgettable time slip story from the Sunday Times bestselling author Natasha Pulley that takes us from French-occupied London to a remote Scottish lighthouse and the heat of a naval battle that holds the difference between one future and another. And then there's a little handwritten bit that says, Come home if you remember. The postcard has been held at the sorting office for 91 years, waiting to be delivered to Joe Tornier. On the front is a lighthouse, Eileen Moore, in the Outer Hebrides. Joe has never left England, never left London. He's a British slave, one of the thousands throughout the French Empire. He has a job, a wife, a baby daughter. But he also has flashes of a life he cannot remember and of a world that has never existed. A world where English is spoken in England and not French. And now he has a postcard of a lighthouse built just six months earlier. That was first written nearly 100 years ago by a stranger who seems to know him very well. Joe's journey to unravel the truth will take him from French-occupied London to a remote Scottish island and back through time itself as he battles for his life and for a very different future. Mm. Sounds intriguing. I haven't read a time travelling book I did love the Midnight Library. We know how uh, I felt I love the Time Traveler's <laughs> Wife. That's my all-time favorite. Me too. Yes. Do we know that I think already? we've said that on this That's podcast. That's why it appealed to me. Because it's a bit like oh, Time right. Traveler's Wife, yes, maybe. Yes, maybe. Mm. So that's The Kingdoms by Natasha Pulley. This one, oh, I, I just have a feeling about this one that's going to be a hit. Well, not a hit, but it's going to do some things. Mm. It's called The Airways by Jennifer Mills. It says, I had a body once before. I didn't always love it. I knew the skin as my limit and there were times I longed to leave it. I knew better than to wish for this. This is the story of Yun. It's the story of Adam, two young people, a familiar chase. But this is not a love story. It's a story of revenge, transformation, survival. Feel something the body commands. Feel this, but it's a phantom. I go untouched. They want their body back. Who are we if we lose hold of the body? What might we become? The airways shift between Sydney and Beijing, unsettling the boundaries of gender and power, consent and rage, self and other, and even life and death. This is a non-binary ghost story. A powerful, inventive and immersive novel from award-winning author Jennifer Mill. Wow. I know. I can't wrap my brain around that. Me either. What is that even I don't know. I don't know what a non-binary ghost story is. And... I don't know if there's two people or one. Mm. Intriguing. Intriguing indeed. So that's The Airways by Jennifer Mills. Mm. J.P. Pomer has a new book out. So he is the author of Call Me Evie, In the Clearing and Tell Me Lies. All three books have done really, really well and people love his books. This is an Achette book. So this is – this sounds really good actually – Ever have the feeling you're being watched? A smart, unsettling, unputdownable literary thriller from award-winning writer J.P. Pomer. Lena and Kane are doing the best to stay afloat. Money has been tight since Kane returned from active duty and starting a family is proving harder than they thought. Putting Lena's inherited lake house up for rent at the weekend seems to be the solution to at least one of their problems. The secluded house is more 
more of a burden than a retreat anyway, and fixing it up makes Kane feel useful for once. But letting strangers stay in their house might not be the best idea. Someone is watching their most mundane tasks, their most intimate moments, and all the things Lena and Kane want to keep hidden will be exposed. Darkly riveting psychological thriller. So that mm. sounds okay. Yeah, that I does think sound good. Fans of his other work will go no for doubt that. Enjoy this. That also sounds like a movie. Yeah. In the making. Yeah. This is an Achette book as well. A poignant debut from an exciting new literary talent. This has been shortlisted for the Rochelle Prize for Emerging Writers and the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. And that's a pretty big deal, the Victorian Premier's Award, that Mm. one, for an unpublished manuscript. It's about how the life you have can change in an instant. It's about friendship, desire, loss and growing up to accept that all you can do is be in the moment and look to find the joys in between. It's got, I'm going to show you the cover and I'm sorry, listeners, you won't be able to see it. It's got one of those covers. Oh, it's similar to Jesse Two's actually yeah. Lonely Girl in that it's just all one color. It's pink. And then the person, it's kind of like a cartoon person with no face. Yeah. It's very sparse. And it's a lot, there's a lot of books with that mm, vibe at that the moment. Vibe, yeah, so for I sure. guess they're appealing to those audiences. Just quickly, Stephen King's got a new book coming out called Billy Summers. It's a crime novel. Ooh. He's got lots of fans. So it doesn't sound scary, just straight up crime, small Uh. town America crime. Now, this one I am also looking forward to. This is my last one. It's called Dissolved by Nikki Gemmell. Have you read any Nikki Gemmell books? Uh, I don't know if I've actually read any of her books, but I know who she is and I've read some of her magazine articles, I think. Yes. This is a story of a writer finding her voice, struggling to have a room of her own. It's the story of all women finding space for themselves against the very important men in their lives. It's a deeply personal, profoundly intimate reflection on love and female creativity in a man's world and what happens when it all collides. I love Nikki Gemmell's writing. She wrote a book a couple of years ago called After mm. and that was a memoir about her relationship with her mother Right. and the catalyst for her writing that book was her mother decided to take her own life or euthanised herself without telling anybody <gasps> first. So she was ill? I think she was ill from memory. She was quite ill And then, you know, she had ordered whatever she needed from overseas and got her in and committed suicide or Mm. euthanised herself. And then people just arrived home and found her. And so it's the aftermath of that. And it's just the most heartbreaking novel. It's beautifully written. It's one of my favourites, non-fiction pieces. It's it's pretty heart-wrenching. Right. But I'm looking forward to reading um, this new book of hers. Right. I thought we could do a little bit of literary news. Yes, please. So the right-wing media has been having a bit of a field day claiming Dark Emu has been debunked Mm. after a book called Farmers or Hunter-Gatherers, The Dark Emu Debate was published by two people, Peter Sutton and Karen Walsh. And Peter Sutton is a social anthropologist and Karen Walsh is an archaeologist, both with decades of experience in Australian Indigenous culture, so not from just anyone. Mm. I'm just going to read this quote about 
the book. In Farmers or Hunter Gatherers, Peter Sutton and Karen Walsh ask why Australians have been so receptive to the notion that farming represents an advance from hunting and gathering. Drawing on the knowledge of Aboriginal elders, previously not included within this discussion, and decades of anthropological scholarship, Sutton and Walsh provide extensive evidence to support their argument that classical Aboriginal society was a hunter-gatherer society and as sophisticated as the traditional European farming methods. Farmers or hunter-gatherers asks Australians to develop a deeper understanding and appreciation of Aboriginal society and culture. And of course, I should have said at the beginning, we're, I'm mentioning this because we mm. did Dark Emu for one of our previous episodes. And yes, yeah, somebody else said its success as a narrative has been achieved in spite of its failure as an account of fact about Dark Emu. This book seems to be so polarizing. Mm. And I I feel like you have to be careful to try and find balanced media about it. And I feel like what's troubling to me is that the intent of some of the media outlets by discrediting Dark Emu and specifically Bruce Pascoe is to suggest that the Aboriginal culture is less than, less mm. sophisticated. Yeah, and almost a C we told you yeah yeah why do they why are they so keen to do that whereas mm. what i'm getting from this sutton and walsh book which i of course haven't read yet but is they were they're saying that they were hunter gatherers and why do we need to say they were farmers in order yeah, to legitimize make, yeah. their way of doing things yeah which is a valid point to make as well i mean when we read dark yumi when that first came out there was some commentary already the legitimacy of of what Bruce Pascoe was saying. And even in his heritage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is one of those hot topic things that, you know, certain media outlets would pick up on that and spin it in a way that is a bit of a... It's just racist. So kind of... It's yeah. Like racist. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Rather than taking a scientific factual approach. Right, which is what I feel that Sutton and mm. Walsh have done here. One anthropologist, while maintaining that the Aboriginal society was a hunter-gatherer society, said, and I liked this quote, the boundary between foraging and farming is a fuzzy one. Yeah. And why are yeah. we making such a big deal about it? Yeah. Like, mm. Anyway, if that has been sort of dominating my literary news that I get, so I thought I'd mention it. Good one. Anything else? That's it for now. Should we talk about our book for August? Yes, please. I'm looking forward to this one. Yes. It is... After Story by Larissa Berent. So I'll do a little blurb, shall I? Yes, please. When Indigenous lawyer Jasmine decides to take her mother Della on a tour of England's most revered literary sites, Jasmine hopes it will bring them closer together and help them reconcile the past. 25 years earlier, the disappearance of Jasmine's older sister devastated their tight-knit community. This tragedy returns to haunt Jasmine and Della when another child mysteriously goes missing on Hampstead Heath. As Jasmine immerses herself in the world of her literary idols, including Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, and Virginia Woolf, Della is in inspired to rediscover the wisdom of her own culture and storytelling. But sometimes the stories that are not told can become too great to bear. Ambitious and engrossing, After Story celebrates the extraordinary power of words and the quiet spaces between. We can be ready to listen, but are we ready to hear? Yay. <laughs> Jane found this one for us, and as soon as she told me about it, I was like, definitely. Yeah, mm. we get all the, the emails with what's coming out this year and what's being published, and this one... I found months and months ago and every month, is it, is it time for After Story yet? <laughs> no, next month, next month. So we're yes. finally there. This one hits all the marks. I think it's going to be good. Yeah. 
So that one will be available in the collection. So jump online or drop in and put one on hold. And of course, join our Facebook group, subscribe, like, all that sort of thing. And happy reading. See you next month. Bye. And we yes. might not have been. Yeah. That sounds, <laughs> sounds dramatic. <laughs> we had thought we might be going into a lockdown, but we didn't. But we're here. Here we are. Well, I, I bet we still would be doing this. It's just yeah. that because we're so dedicated <laughs> to our jobs and to this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to cut this bit out. Okay. But I feel like this is going to be... Weird. <laughs> this book particularly? No, us talking today. I, can, um, I don't know. I feel like we're in we're a all, weird headspace. Yeah, we are. We, but let's push on. We thought we were going to have a lockdown and now we're not having one. Oh, and no. I feel oddly disappointed, Me which too. is I know the wrong. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm going to stay home. Books, I'm reading. Read books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Here we are. Here we are.